I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. Today we're going to hear a great panel discussion about the use of entheogens and psychedelic drugs in the healing of sexual trauma with three brilliant women in the field, Laura May Northrup, Letitia Brown, and Britta Love. This is a discussion about sex and drugs, so please be advised. Welcome to the event, Sex and Drugs. My name is Laura May Northrup. I am a psychotherapist and I'm a podcaster. I make the podcast called Inside Eyes. It's about people who are using psychedelics and entheogens to heal sexual trauma. And I am joined by Letitia Brown, who is a sex therapist who I know through our connection to Sage Institute and our shared interest in ketamine therapy. So happy to be here with you. And also joined by Britta Love, who is a somatic sex educator and who I know through our shared interest in psychedelics, sex, just attending similar conferences over the years. Such an honor to be here with you too. So to get the conversation started, and also to give the audience just some context for each of us, just what brings us to the intersection of sex and drugs? And I can go first unless one of you is just like ready to go. I'll go first. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I want to end capitalism. And basically I see sexual violence and really specifically the epidemic of sexual violence as a really important part of what keeps capitalism and systems of oppression alive. And that's because I really view what the results of sexual violence generationally, like in the person who perpetrated the harm, the person who experienced and survived the harm, and the generations that follow, I see that that experience as very spiritually wounding and disembodying to people and thus, in the end, really disempowering. And so I'm really invested in the potential of psychedelics and entheogens for people to heal sexual trauma, because I think that is a medium of healing that allows people to reach really powerful levels of empowerment. And ultimately, I want us to be empowered because I don't like capitalism and I'm not down with oppression. <laughs> so that's what brings me to this intersection. Yeah, and I also just think psychedelics are amazing consciousness expanding tools, as is healing, as is sexuality. And so anyone want to go next? 
I can go. So I would say probably the world of harm reduction is what sort of brought me into a more intentional connection between drugs and sex. As a person who has been involved in sexuality work and advocacy around sexuality work, that has been the thing for me for as long as I could remember. And I say often that I'm new to this place around psychedelics because it wasn't until a harm reduction conference that I really started to like lean into this work around psychedelics. And since then, the way that it has moved and shifted and shaped has been just tremendously expansive. And it also feels like a huge blessing that I can be in both of these worlds. And there's a lot that comes with it. And I think when I, particularly as a harm reductionist, when I think about altered states of consciousness, I think about how those are sites and tools for us to get engaged with a lot of healing and how that often we find a sense of the sacred in sexuality. And we also find a sense of sacred when people engage with plant medicine and theogens, psychedelics. And for me, all of those things I put under the context of drugs because I'm a harm reductionist. So that's, that's what kind of brought me into that intersection. Hmm. Oh, I love that. I feel like I could talk for a really long time about how I got here. <laughs> you know, I feel like sexuality and drugs were really my entry point into my own healing, into spirituality, into understanding trauma, understanding consent, both through difficult experiences and profound experiences. And so really, for me, they kind of came into my life at the same time. I was I became a sex worker pretty young at 19, and that was around the same time that I started exploring with drugs. And it's interesting because to me, I quickly noticed that these were like kind of two of the most powerful, accessible, like immediate ways to enter into these profound altered states. And they were also like the most like taboo and laughed at and not really ever treated seriously. And so for me, it was sort of like this mix of experiences of like floundering around and yet stumbling often into really profound and meaningful connections with people, experiences of healing and communication, as well as boundary crossings what the hell is going on? So all of it at the same time. And so that's really where I landed, where I was just like, why are these things that are so powerful, so hard to talk about in a serious way in our culture? Like when you bring up sex and drugs, you have to make a joke. There's just like a nervous laughter. And that's fun. And I love that. And also, what does that mean about the hidden power that our culture has kind of refused to acknowledge when these points of access maybe have been so profound and so like linchpins of entire religious and spiritual traditions and indigenous traditions for thousands and thousands of years. So that was kind of the, my entry point. And then it kind of ties a little bit into also to Laura, what you said about ending capitalism, because you start looking at what happens in our culture and our culture is so oriented towards control to like victory, to domination, to like these different dynamics. And then to me, when I think of what underpins sex and drugs, it's the surrender. It's the having to let go into this altered state. And to me, I think that might be why they're so taboo in a way. And in that surrender, you kind of surrender to your unconscious and also to maybe other ways of knowing and other forms of experience, other forms of intelligence. And so when we're in connection in those ways to land, to spirit, to ancestors, to our own selves, we are not exploitable in the same ways under capitalism or by a church. So I think that like there's such 
deep, powerful doorways in. And I'm very grateful to my paths through addiction and, and through sex work because they brought me there. And I still identify as a sex worker, as a somatic sex educator. So, yeah. Awesome. And that makes me think about a question I have that relates to these topics that we're kind of approaching. And it also ties into some of what we had intended to talk about today in terms of the war on drugs and the war on sex work and the connection between that. And really, like another question I have in that is, is there a war on consciousness? Like, is there a war on embodiment? I mean, when you bring up the piece about, you know, connection to land, connection to ancestors, I feel like Christian supremacy, white supremacy, definitely there is a war on connection to ancestors, connection to spirit, connection to land. I'm really big on looking through Silvia Federici's work, the transition from feudalism to capitalism, that she's sort of hypothesizing how that happened. And she's basically talking a lot about in her book, The Caliban and the Witch, about the church and then basically forming state powers, implementing a lot of violence directly to people, which both in Europe and then through colonialism abroad. And so, yeah, I have this question. Is there a war on consciousness? Is there a war on like our connection to the earth? But also just curious to hear your thoughts on the connection between the war on sex work and the war on drugs. When we think about the war on folks who use drugs, when we think about the war on sex workers, you know, anyone who's ever done a training with me or has heard me talk about harm reduction, I'm always screaming it from the rooftops, right? That harm reduction while the public health world has embraced it in all kinds of ways, and it's really great, harm reduction was created by sex workers and drug users, right? Folks who use drugs. And when I think about how important it is in both of those communities and the way those communities intersect is how all of these experiences are political, right? So when I think specifically around sex and drugs and the ways in which those have been used as weapons against us, but they also can be sites of a whole bunch of freedom, go figure. I think about bodily autonomy, right? And the reality that at the end of the day, I believe that all of us have the right to do what it is that we want and need to do with our bodies. And that most importantly, we can have dignity around that. And that we get to have places that are safe for us to do that and that we get access, right? Because if we have all of those things, then that also allows us to have, again, this sort of relationship of coming back to the community, coming back to land, as you all were talking about. And that also allows for that sort of collective expansion of consciousness, as opposed to this sort of very individualized route of healing. Yeah. And I just want to tag onto that too. Just the paradox of, you know, I'm super pro drug use, obviously, but also, you know, when people are using drugs in a manner that is really like painful to them and where they're really struggling with it, most of the time, that's because they're dealing with trauma. And yeah. isn't it wild that, you know, the same culture that's like, we're going to oppress you. We're also going to oppress you for trying to deal cope, but also we're going to make it illegal to do the kind of healing that maybe actually could be really powerful that also utilizes drugs. And I mean, I'm a big fan of just the term complexity. Like we're just a, a dominant culture of the U.S. just cannot deal with complexity. And this whole conversation we're having in sex and drugs, just like imbuing complexity. But Britta, I didn't mean to cut you <laughs> off. I want to hear what you have to say about the war on all this too. Not Please. at all. I mean, there's so many different directions. My brain's kind of going all over the place. So I'll kind of pick one place and land and come back. You know, for me, the war on drugs and the war on sex work, I wrote a piece for Symposia a few years about this because I just thought the overlap is like incredible. You can actually just like look at, you know, consensual crimes, 
you know, affecting the most marginalized, like, you know, the racial, gender, and class discrimination is perpetuated through these systems in the same way. They're points of accessing potential healing that we never even get to look at because of the way they're criminalized. The trafficking laws that, you know, drug trafficking and sex trafficking that are both kind of very hysterical, media-fueled, that cause laws and um, protocols that actually harm people who are being harmed in those ways and then also harm people who weren't being harmed. So, you know, this, this is a two-caste system. You know, if you're a Wall Street banker seeing an escort who's advertising on a website paying several hundred dollars a month, you're probably not going to ever be worrying about the criminal justice system, as Gabor Mate always stresses. Like, whereas if you're working on the street, you're, or even not, even just walking as a black trans woman down the street, you can be nicked and accused of loitering for the purposes of prostitution. So, you know, it's always felt to me that like seeing the laws change that were a lot of us here, I think it's psychedelic seminars and I'm, I'm projecting on the audience here, like, you know, are actually like committed to and wanting to see change. It's the same, it's the same stuff. It's the same injustices. And in the same way that we're learning now, I think rapidly in the psychedelic movement that we need to be in support of decriminalizing all drugs to be in integrity with our ethics and our understanding of the injustice in this culture that we also need to be looking at the decriminalization of all sex work, whether it's the kind that we think of as particularly healing and uplifting and empowering or not, because that is just what's going to keep people the most safe and give them the most access to choice and give them the access to live their life the way that they can only know how to best do. So that's my sex and drug war of rants. Yeah. And Britta, I'm wondering, you know, just for people who are listening, who were that kind of psychedelic exceptionalism versus sort of like, oh, we should decriminalize psychedelics versus we should not decriminalize other drugs. Britta or Letitia, do either of you want to maybe say a little bit more about that? Just for people who that might be a new concept, like why would we decriminalize all drugs? Letitia, you want to go for it? Sure. I mean, one of the first things that I think about, particularly when we talk about using altered states of consciousness for healing, right? We often talk about liberation. We often talk about freedom. And so if we want to actually think about what freedom looks like, one of the places that we can go, one of the places we can start is literally to our prison industrial complex, right? We literally have folks who are in jail for all kinds of things that now, right? When we think about cannabis in particular, people are making billions of dollars out of, right? It's normalized in our culture in a way that is awesome and great. And we still haven't figured out what to do about the black folks and the brown folks and the poor folks who are locked up for these crimes, right? That's not a priority to us, clearly. And for me, in particular, when I think about that piece around moving forward and being able to open ourselves up to other things, that is a piece that's going to be really important for thinking about psychedelic healing, right? Like if we're really trying to go for healing, if we're really trying to lean into liberation, if we're really trying to lean into freedom, well, then let's start with folks who don't even have access to basic freedoms that we all deserve. Absolutely. B, do you want to add more to that? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's sort of a, a history of um, trying to demonize certain drugs and valorize others. And every culture has its version of that. And every time period has had its version of that. Um, 
And I'm very skeptical of anyone who claims that any substance is inherently good or bad for any person to be engaging with. I think that there were times in my life where drugs that I wouldn't take today were very good choices for me to make, actually, with what was available to me. And I think that there are psychedelics that I have spent years quasi-evangelizing at times about. I have now seen used by QAnon shamans, and uh, and I think that I rest my case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Set, setting, set, setting, set, setting. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, well, that brings me to another kind of question that we've been talking about, which is... Um, I mean, obviously, like even my asking this question of like, oh, maybe for people who haven't like heard, you know, like the argument that we should be trying to decriminalize all drugs versus obviously a lot of people who are probably tuned in have heard the argument that we should at least decriminalize psychedelics. But that brings me to this question of what do we actually need in terms of sex and drug education in order to move forward, in order to get out of this place away from and repair or heal from, obviously things are going to be totally repaired, but healing from the war on sex work and the war on drugs and just moving forward into a more liberatory state. Obviously it's going to take a lot of years for capitalism to end, like maybe hundreds, but what's the next step y'all? What's the next step? <laughs> I mean, for me, um, I I've, I've just developed like a deep passion for like embodied consent education because I just think that, um, so many of the like negative experiences in society around drug use and around sex and around the overlap of the two come through a living in a society where we're quite often socialized from day one to override our internal sense of yes and no and what's okay and not okay for us. Yes. Um, and I think it can take literally years of practice to overcome those, you know, everything from when you go to the doctor's office and you just do what the doctor says, or, you know, when your creepy uncle wants to give you a kiss and you just know that that's what you're supposed to do, or mom tells you, go on. And all of these ways that we really just come to, or, you know, for me, I'll just speak from the eye here. I, I definitely feel like it's taken me years to get to a place where I even notice in moments where sometimes I'm not even paying attention to the noticing that would tell me what I actually want, never mind valuing it enough, mm -hmm. trusting it enough to actually risk communicating it with a person. And then there's the fact that we live in a culture where it's often not safe to communicate it with a person. And that's- Or being that's your body. Or, or being your body, exactly. So that becomes a whole other set of challenges where that means the people around us have to also be cultivating this desire to actually hear no and honor a no. And so all these things like really, to me, feed into um, a lot of the fear around what happens when we decriminalize sex work or drugs, because there's already so much struggle with consent in our culture. And then to like leave these fields wide open not that they're not already wide open and people are already engaging the way they want to engage, but I think it brings up a lot for people who are not seeing the, the things in place socially that we need for understanding like conscious use, like set and setting. How do we have real community even mm -hmm. around our use mm -hmm. and get support around our use or yes. our connections with others or what happens when consent is violated? So, I mean, I feel like there's a lot. I'll let Letitia, I'll let you jump in too on, on at the education piece. Well, I mean, basically a lot more of what you're saying, be like 
the piece around this sort of back and forth of being able to hold, you know, for so many people, I think in the last few years, especially when we've seen, you know, what's happened in the midst of COVID and we've seen uprisings in the last year plus, um, people are getting this sort of like socio-political education about the reality of the world that we live in, the reality about our American culture and all of the harm that's there historically and currently. And then I think the other side of that is being able to do that work with yourself around how does this show up for me too? And so one of the other things that I think can come up in psychedelic spaces and circles when we think about, you know, exceptionalism is also that sort of like spiritual bypassing, this idea that we are all one, we are all part of one race, and that is the human race, and we are all connected to each other. And that is true. And that does not mean that the psychedelic world and those spaces that we're in are not just microcosms of the larger society that we are in, and that there is work that needs to be done within those spaces on an individual level, right? Like, oh, there's some white supremacy coming up for me. I need to do some work around that, right? And and one of the things that I think, you know, when Britta was talking about the somatic piece, right, that embodiment piece, it's, it's this really interesting thing where when we do this work, we ask people to turn towards the shadow, right? We tell people, like, there's no such thing as a bad trip. There are challenging experiences. The journey is what the journey is. So we encourage people to be with discomfort in their own healing. But when folks get really uncomfortable about some of these things that we talk about, when we talk about race, when we talk about class, when we talk about heteronormativity, right? When we talk about a lot of these different pieces and people get really, really reactive, that then is the moment for us to slow down and go, wait, what's that about? What's, what's happening here for me? instead of moving to this really defensive place and talking about how we're politicizing everything. The reality is that our existence is political, all of us. Our existence is actually extremely political if we are trying to engage in plant medicine and have a more communal relationship and try to push back against capitalism. And just for me, I'm black, I'm queer and I'm femme. My existence, but also my joy, my pleasure, my fun, that's all an act of resistance. So this is political, the personal is political and that's okay. But I think people really having an understanding about what is real and true about the world that we live in, particularly around access or lack thereof and what those current and historical harms have been, that's a really important piece around this education, right? Because you, you can't not talk about sex and you can't not talk about psychedelics and theogens or plant medicines without exploring that. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm so glad you, that framework really just like brought me back to, to wanting to like name that, you know, that when we're playing with, you know, conscious kink or in, in the sexual realms or, you know, playing in um, the psychedelic realms, we're often kind of talking about dealing with the shadow, but we're not talking about, or not as comfortable talking about the dealing with the collective shadows that exist and, and how important mm. that healing is and how much we, we access in those states that, and how much can come up and how it has sit with that discomfort. And I think that for me, when I think about, you know, I was kind of like, by the time I was in my mid twenties, I was so convinced that like sex and drugs, like saved my life, they could save the world kind of. 
Um, and I still, in my heart of heart, kind of feel that way. And with this like big asterisk of like, if we create the right containers, because yes. I see what's happening in the psychedelic renaissance. And there's some great people who really get these bigger pictures. And there's also a lot of big money and big power and power driven moves that really, that really don't seem to get that. And without those things built into the containers, right, we're not going to m- maybe see the fulfillment of what seems possible when we have those, those moments of like, you know, psychedelic or transcendent sexual, you know, consciousness. And so um, kind of lost my point there, but that's, Mm-mm. I do still think they could save the world is what I want to say. <laughs> I want to chime in and there's so many different pieces of what you all are saying that I want to like speak to you. But um, one thing that I think is um, really critical that you both brought up is you know, I do see education around some education around kind of like, you know, say yes, or giving consent. Um, Mm -hmm. But the education around receiving the no. And I think that that's also really tied in with the education around checking yourself on privilege. Like, I I think there actually there's, there's an element of shame and rejection that is very hard for people to deal with. And I want to like, weave in this other thought that I had recently, I don't know, I might've been in an altered state maybe, but um, (laughs) you know, I was just sort of having this, this process where I was thinking about, um, so I really believe that sexual violence is a form of spiritual abuse, but I just kind of sank into just all violence disconnects us from spirit. And that's not just for the person who is the victim. That's Mm -hmm. really for the person who is perpetrating the violence too. And I Mm -hmm. think that there's just so much, um, and, and this is maybe a place where I want more complexity and nuance around, you know, when we talk about privilege, I, I think that word um, is valuable. And I also think people get confused that they think that it's like really awesome to be so freaking isolated or disconnected or disliked. Uh, you know, I just think about even in the context of consent, like, you know, obviously the majority of sexual violence is is perpetrated by cis men. That's not the only people who perpetrate, perpetrate sexual violence. But, you know, within that, there's so much isolation and there's so yes. much inability to really just be connected and to tolerate shame. And I think that there's some like educational piece there um, that's like, this actually isn't that awesome. Like after Me Too started and people were saying things like, well, how can you ever hit on anyone anymore? And I'm thinking, <laughs> what the hell were you doing that you're worried you're going to get called out for it? Like, and mm-hmm. like, what a moment to just kind of say like, wow, maybe there's another way I could have a more successful, you know, rather than like, how am I supposed to hit on somebody? Like, is there a way that I can be more connected to people? Um, Mm -hmm. So this is just something I'm thinking about in relationship to sexuality and consent. Um, And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, yes, there's a, there's a tie in with psychedelics too. And there was one more piece I was going to name, but maybe I'll just leave it there. It looks like you have thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just jumping off of that, I mean, I think that it's something I often think about, that like people, you know, most often when we perpetuate harm, we're not conscious of it. And and Mm -hmm. most often when we have privileged blind spots and perpetuate harm, it's because we're not conscious of our power, of our relationality, of what's happening around us. I mean, there's, of course, there are people who consciously do terrible things but I think that the sort of banality of evil sort of thing is that every day walking around with the privileges that I have I can commit harm by just not noticing them not paying attention and I have the option of not noticing them that someone else might not have and I 
at the same time in my interactions with, with cis men will notice that they're able to ignore their privileges and, and that privilege as a point of disconnection and of harm to the person who's privileged as well is, is I think is important to name, not because we're, you know, equating them as like they're, they're different things, but because um, that experience is, I, I often feel really sad in my, in my experience doing a lot of more mainstream sex work in my younger years, like just noticing how often uh, people were just we're missing basic tools of connection and understanding and coming to a place where they felt that they could act without shame and sort of have this space. Um, so I think, and what I've noticed doing work with the wheel of consent now, which has been a big focus mm. of mine for the last couple of years is Shout that, Betty um, Martin. yes, Betty Martin's incredible work. Um, and she's got a book out now, which is wonderful. I highly recommend on the wheel of consent. Um, really just like embodied practices for noticing what our habituated ways of relating are. And so like, you know, how comfortable are we with the taking realm, for example, and how mm. comfortable and um, sort of naturally do we sink into just allowing or tolerating or enduring and, um, and all those there's healthy ways to do all four things is the model, right? There's a healthy, everyone needs to take. We all have moments where we, we want to take something. We want to take it with consent, but we, we do have that urge. It's the normal, healthy thing. And most of the time, we're not comfortable with desire. We're not comfortable with the take. Mm. And so that's when we start entering into the shadow of the taking. And we find ways to sort of sneakily say, hey, do you want to eat that, that at that Chinese restaurant tonight? When what I want to say is I'm really craving Chinese restaurant like food tonight. Yeah. So like we hide desire. And that a big place where we start to get murky around what we're actually looking for and and how we stay in integrity and what we're communicating with people and then the sort of slipping into enduring and allowing is something we're often socialized to do either through trauma on a personal family you know familial level or on a collective level being socialized female is often a process of being socialized into you know allowing enduring and and going into that space so um I just feel like there's a lot of micro and macro practices that come from noticing where we're comfortable, what dynamics we're comfortable in, and where we fall in different power structures. And when we start mapping those things out, it gives us a lot more ability to consciously navigate sexual and psychedelic experiences without um, struggling in the ways that commonly do come up in our culture right now. Leticia, do you want to respond to what Britta was just saying? Yeah, I mean, the other part about this that I think we have to figure out what we do, especially when we think about harm, is is how do we all sort of get into a relationship with harm where we, we normalize it, where we acknowledge unintentionally, right? Like as Britta said before, often when this happens, this is, this is not the intent or it's an, a blind side that no one sees what they're doing. But if we are attempting to... Um, actually heal and create spaces for repair, if we're really trying to hold folks accountable, then there has to be this sort of understanding that we have processes put in place where there is a communal sense of that accountability, where folks know that if they engage in something that is harmful, yes, they'll be called in, they'll be held to account, but then they also get an opportunity to shift, to grow 
to make amends, to not do this again, which ultimately has an impact that's necessary for all of us. And I, I think that gets really nuanced, right? Like there's no book that says you do this step and this step and this step when folks harm within community. But otherwise what we get often is folks feeling like if I make a mistake, if I do something wrong, if I harm someone, then I get to be othered. I get to be pushed out of a community. I get to be the thing that everyone else says they will never be, right? Which is not how this works. Mm -hmm. We all have this within us. And that I think is one of the ways that we, we actually shift things in the way we need to shift them where it's just normalized that not what do we do if someone harms? What do we do as a community when someone is harmed by somebody else or when someone has harm? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think this, I mean, it ties in when somebody harms other someone else sexually. Also, I think this ties into like, even just questions of like, when somebody is harming themselves. Um, like, for example, somebody might be harming themselves with, you know, more severe drug use. And just like the complexity of how we approach people, like, as opposed to you're bad, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, you shouldn't have done this, whatever. You'd be a better person if you didn't do these things. And I just want to like call out, obviously, a lot of this is tied in with white supremacy and Christian supremacy, just this sort of narrative that you do one bad thing and you're bad forever. You're going to hell. And just again, like complexity, complexity, nuance, if we can just talk about these things in a more complex way. And I love what you're saying about how there's no one way. I think there's so much of... um so much of what we look for since we've been talking about American culture is like the one way or the pill, the thing that's just kind of the like, if I just do it like this and it's like, no, you actually have to do the painful, hard work of being alive and being in real <laughs> relationship. Yeah, you got to go through it. And it's really hard. And we're coming off like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of like really messed up systemic oppression. So like, yeah, we do really messed up stuff to each other and to ourselves. So mm -hmm. I, I love what you're saying about that. And um, yeah, I guess, do either of you want to say anything else about that? Or should we go to a question? Are you ready for questions? You want to keep going? We could do questions. We, we'll follow you, Laura. We trust mm -hmm. you. Okay. <laughs> um, so this is a, a great question. Uh, all this political discussion is making me think of a question dear to my personal experience of sexual abuse, which of course is a spiritual blessing. I'm puzzled by this question. Where's the accounting of American military culture, military systems, and their influence on the sexual abuse of children? Does anyone want to speak to that? And maybe before I, uh, I'll say, you know, this is something that I talk about a little bit in my podcast, um, which is just that Sexual violence has been used in every major war. It's been used in genocide. It is, was used in American chattel slavery. It is used in the prison system. Um, it is used by the government and it's a state sanctioned violence. So even though, you know, people aren't necessarily saying like, hey, go out and sexually assault those people. Um, it's allowed, it's promoted, and that's really a problem. And it really affects people. Like I was saying, you know, it's sexual violence affects people for generations. And also, I like to talk about how sexual violence impacts everyone. So even if you are a person who thinks, I'm not impacted by sexual violence because I haven't experienced sexual violence, you've certainly been in relationship to people who have experienced it. You may have perpetrated it. It may be affecting you because of that. It also can be affecting you just because um, you are afraid of it happening to yourself or someone you love. And I think military violence is like, that is, yeah, yes, 
<laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> and it's interesting that the military is, you know, the military recently, in, um, uh, I can't remember what faction of the military, but the military basically just recently invested $27 million into research into psychedelics. And the research, right, is to like help people not be as traumatized who are going to war. But, you know, you got a question, is that so they can just like be less traumatized and get back out into war? And what's up with that? Like, is that, is that an answer? Because people are, you know, traumatized and then come home and spread the violence. It sounds like is what this person's talking about. Other thoughts? So many. (laughs) And I guess this question of like accounting for it, you know, I mean, I don't know how we're going to account and hold accountable something as massive as the military. Sometimes something that I just sit with is that we're doing the slow work right now. Like, we're just doing the slow work with each other. We're doing the slow work with all the people who are here listening today. And, you know, obviously I talk about ending capitalism, like that's not happening tomorrow. I'm probably never going to see that happen in my lifetime. And it's like, you got to sometimes just see yourself in the, in the movement and know like we're moving towards ending sexual violence though. And, and somehow holding the U S military accountable um, though, we will not be able to necessarily do that. Like instantly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I think about, you know, this country in particular and the way that we engage in state sanctioned violence, you know, I, I just think about, you know, our relationships to um, law enforcement, particularly for black, brown folks, poor folks, right? Because I see that often as an offshoot of the military. Um, And so one of the things that we hear often from folks in the abolition movement and we hear often from folks around this idea of defunding the police is that they also are saying there are resources that we have. We have the money that we need to actually feed into communities. And we actually, if we really want to do this work well, if we really want healing for communities, we offer folks the resources and then let them do what they see fit within their communities so that they can have the things that they need, as opposed to everything that we have in our society being so focused on punishment, because we know that punishment actually doesn't do a good job of keeping people from doing things that are harmful, right? But if you give people the things that they need, if people can have love, if people can have dignity and respect, if people can have Um, their sense of autonomy and also their connection to their culture and who they are, then we have like healthy people who can engage in things that are, that are good ultimately. So I, you know, I think about particularly in this country and and the sort of American framework where we're given this narrative around scarcity, that we cannot afford to do a lot of the things that would be more humanist focused, um, that we just don't have it. And the reality is that that's not at all true, right? We have the things that we need in order to get some of this healing to folks, but that's not what we are centering, right? We are ultimately centering power, domination, violence, capitalism. Sure. And yeah, all these systems, I mean, if if there was an actual investment in people being well, like capitalism wouldn't work because capitalism always needs people who are not well, people who are being able to be exploited, basically, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like there's, um, you know, just even looking, which I, I do with like a half a heart, because I, I think kind of evolutionary biology and the way it can be used and has been used historically is kind of very sketchy. But when you look, kind of look at our closest 
you know, uh, primate cousins, bonobos and chimpanzees, and so much of our projection, I would say, about what's natural human behavior is based on chimpanzee behavior, which we observe, uh, sexual violence, we, we observe infanticide, warring tribes, male domination, and we're equally genetically related to bonobos. And bonobos are on their way towards extinction in the Congo, and they've been very little studied, but the little that we do know is that it's a much more of a partnership culture and that you see very free sexual expression. You see very matrifocal groups or matriarchal even, I think it would be fair to say. And you see that in this like non-power over model where when, you know, supposedly competing or different groups of bonobos meet, the women kind of come together, share food and rub their genitals on each other. And suddenly everyone's sharing everything and we're in a different model, right? And I think it just shows that the assumptions that we have around power and domination and relational models and sexuality, they're all like interconnected. Like you can't separate out like domination models of the military, sexual violence and patriarchy. Those are all woven together. I love that, Britta. Let's break bread and feel good together. Exactly. That's all I want for the world. <laughs> bread um, ways. There's so many questions in here, but you know, another question that I had that I wondered if um, either of you would want to talk about, there's all this sexual violence that happens in psychedelic spaces and in other kinds of spaces. And they're people advocating, you know, we got to prevent the sexual violence from happening in psychedelic spaces. And then there are people advocating for psychedelic healing that includes sexual healing and may include sexual touch from a practitioner, like hardball question, y'all. And, you know, I have been on panels where we've talked about this. I've listened to other people talk about this. And just since we're on the tip of complexity, like, what do y'all think about that? Like, is it okay to use psychedelics and be a practitioner providing some form of sexual touch with psychedelics and do healing work. How are people doing that and making a, a container for it? Um, and also if you want to speak at all to like survivors of sexual violence, seeking out that type of healing. It's a big one. I I'll jump in because this is something I think about a lot when this gets brought up from my training as a somatic sex educator. We're trained to hold containers for one-way touch for sexual healing, education, and pleasure um, that's completely client-centered where we might not even involve touch in a session ever, or maybe not for a long series of sessions because we're really focused on empowering a client's choice and voice and really getting to be clear that we have a relationship where that person will be able to communicate with us once we do hands-on work. And at the same time, leading up to that, we are creating very clear containers in every session about what the limitations and boundaries of what's going to take place will be before there is any altering of consciousness through what is an altered state of arousal, of erotic trance, and of orgasm. So in a session that I might do, if we said, okay, we're going to do a session and we're going to invite if I feel called in the moment as a client, I might, I might invite you to touch my genitals externally, but not internally. And anal touch is not on the table today, for example. That might be what we map out for the session. Um, if I get very into it on the table and then decide, actually, I do want to explore something different than we talked about. As a practitioner, my role is we never up negotiate. We only down negotiate once we're in an altered state. So to me, these are like tools that 
you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel in the psychedelic community doing this work. Like in sexual healing spaces, we've been figuring this out for decades. And I think longer than that. And I think that it takes a lot of integrity. It takes a lot of communication. It takes a lot of training. I'm not always a big fan of like people needing to be qualified through big institutions, but I do think that we need very strong community if we're not using that and a very strong like code of ethics and peer supervision. But I think that this is really important work. Um, I know that for just using the altered states of arousal, erotic trance and orgasm, so much potent healing, like embodied healing is accessible that would not be accessible through um, purely talk therapy, you know, and I can only, you know, imagine that introducing psychedelics when appropriate, with the right support structures, with the right consent container, with the right relationship, with a practitioner who's established and is, you know, not just marketing themselves as a sexual healer without a community of practice that they're accountable to, this can be really powerful and important work. And I think that the people who are like jumping up and down to suddenly start doing that work because they are already giving someone MDMA and now they can touch genitals while they do it. That's, I think, a big red flag because it should be kind of something that makes you feel slightly queasy with responsibility as a practitioner is how I feel about it. Yeah. Come on, Britta. <laughs> like, like she said everything, right? Like holding reverence and, and respect and honor for this work and the power of this work, I think means that we, we take our time with this, right? We go at the pace of trust and we go even a little bit slower than that, right? Because folks need to be at a place where they can, they can know what that yes feels like and that they know that they can communicate that yes, right? People have to know that, um, that if they're engaging in this work with someone who is a healer, right? That they have the relationship with that person where that person's position of power over or the, the idea this person has position of power over doesn't get in the way of being able to say no, of being able to slow things down, right? All of this work needs to be guided by that person, right? It needs to be centered with that person. And so, yes, of course, this is something that can happen, but there needs to be a lot that goes into this, right? If we're practitioners, we need to really be doing our own work. Um, the piece that Britta just said around you know, communities of accountability is extremely important because, right, for me as a therapist, even if I'm not involving touch, things will happen where my clients might experience some harm on my end. And so what does that opportunity for repair look like in that relational space? And if we add in various altered states of consciousness, we're thinking about sexuality and psychedelics, that just puts that potential up. It skyrockets. And so it is possible and there are so many ways that we can heal and there's so much healing that can happen on the way there. Like, let's not do that weird thing where we make it seem like orgasm is the thing about <laughs> sex. Let's not do that with our healing, right? Like the process of this is the, is the outcome. Exactly. I mean that, and I think that it's so important to stress that there's two things that come to mind just like to reiterate is like one, you know, in the sessions as a somatic sex educator, we don't 
measure like progress by, oh, have we gotten the person on the table yet? Have we invited genital touch yet? Like that is the wrong like model. Like to me, progress is, wow, we decided to do a three minute exercise of touching hands and that person decided to stop in the middle and say, I don't want to do anymore today. That to me is profound because that means they actually are in tuned enough with their desire, comfortable enough with me and able to communicate that within our power dynamic that I know that we can then take the next baby step from there. And like that to me, those are the profoundest moments. Like my teacher tells the story of someone who got on the table and the idea of a bossy massage, you know, nothing happens unless you tell the person what, you know, what kind of touch you want. And this person lay there for 45 minutes and finally at the end said can you just put your hands on my feet and she started crying it was the most profound session of her life right so we don't need to like there's this like destination thing that happens a lot when we start getting yeah and then layer the sex and the psychedelics and get the deepest healing just like you have to take the five grams of mushrooms in silent darkness and then you get the real healing and this is all there's kind of like a machismo to it there's like a weird consumer aspect to it and I also just want to like stress that like um, being a healer is a huge power dynamic role and the assumption that just because we even think we're being conscious and saying is it okay if I or I'm just checking in about this that that's enough to assume that the person's going to be able to say no to you or say I'm not sure or adjust what you're doing is like you cannot make that assumption so I think any work even without the erotic piece in there really establishing uh, consent practices as part of the container before you're introducing an altered state would be a great standard of practice that I'd like to see the whole psychedelic community adopt for all kinds of spaces. Yeah, awesome. Well, so um, I feel like this is going to tie into the next question. Are there certain forms of integration that are particularly useful for survivors of sexual trauma who are using entheogens to heal? And I want to just piggyback off of everything we were just talking about, because I think that this question around healing uh, sexual trauma with psychedelics also kind of has that orgasm centered thing that you were talking about, Letitia, where people get really focused on the journey. And then a lot of times what happens is people are so focused on the journey that they come out of the journey. And I'm, this is going to tie into the question about integration. They come out of the journey and they're really unprepared <laughs> for what happened. And so I know people say integration also means preparation, like that term includes both. But I'm just big on using the term preparation because I think like for most people it, it clicks more. I'm like prepare, do a lot of preparation and integration is gonna be a lot easier. And so, you know, for whoever asked that question, um, I like, just like what we were just talking about, about, you know, that there's so much that's gonna happen before there could be touch or there's so much that's gonna happen before there's an orgasm or an altered state. And with psychedelics and healing sexual trauma, you know, if there's something that you think is going to be so powerful that you think it could dramatically transform some of the most severe trauma you've experienced in your life, it is worth it to spend a lot of time preparing for that experience so that it can actually be really powerful and so that it's not re-traumatizing. So the experience of sexual violence is in itself, it's an overwhelming altered state. Being traumatized is an altered state. Your whole system goes into a state that allows you to survive something that you cannot consciously integrate. And if you don't prepare very well, you might have a killer journey, okay? Like, I'll admit, you might have a killer journey. People do that. But a lot of people, when you're going into heal trauma, 
they don't have a killer journey. Like healing from sexual trauma and doing psychedelic work is hard work. I almost used the F-bomb. I don't know if I can do that here, but it is really, really hard. <laughs> this is about sex and drugs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You get to say the F bomb. All right. So we look really fing hard on censored on sex sense, but this is uh, the host is chatting. So yeah, it's really fing hard. And um and for that reason, you know, like I just wanna really support everybody who's listening who might be trying to do that work. Prepare yourself so that um when you're in the actual journey space, you know how to breathe you already have been building a relationship to something that is a resource for you even if it's just that you think about your pet and you're just like that's the you know even if it's just that you've identified one person or creature that you can kind of draw on but awesome if you have incorporated some kind of breath practice or meditation practice or singing practice something that can kind of ground you and reconnect you to yourself and then I think, you know, in terms of integration after that, I feel like I'm talking a lot, but I, I could say more on this, but do either of you want to chime in about integration work post-ceremony, post-journey for survivors of sexual violence? I mean, I, I would say that that's a big question. All of the things that you said, Laura, make a lot of sense. One of the things that that I think is really important for us to hold is that no one person's experience is going to be like anyone else's especially when we think about trauma and we think about how trauma is this experience of being harmed and you have no control over it. One of the things that we know is really important for folks um, who've experienced trauma is being able to have agency and choice and to really know what that feels like, what that tastes like, right? The other piece that you said around the body, I think being able to come back to our body, being able to do that in a way where we can feel that sense of safety or a sense of groundedness is really important. Um, but I also think because also trauma is so isolating, right? And that's also where that shame piece comes in, that engagement or involvement with community. I, I think that this work always should, this is always relational work, even if we think we're doing it by ourselves because there's always some relational component to this work. And I think that we should really lean into that. And so I think that community piece is also really important. But, you know, it's, it's hard to say, you know, this is the thing that fits a certain population of folks, except to lean into what is it that the person that you're supporting through this process says that they want? What is it that they need? What is it that they want to shift in their lives? And being able to kind of keep coming back to that. Because another thing that can happen when we're in this work is that we have to remind ourselves, are we working towards our own goals? Or are we working towards the goals of the person that we're trying to support, right? This, this work is collaborative. You know, that's a really important question. And I think it's something that we should be thinking about often. And that piece around integration is really huge because like you said, Laura, we put so much emphasis on the medicine, right? Like you're going to have this medicine session, you're going to have this journey and your life's going to change. Cool. Great. And then you come back online into this space and time and dimension. It's like, what the, f how do I, mm -hmm. how do I literally integrate all of these pieces after this experience that I just had, right? How do I stay here if that's what I really want to do? and hold on to that transcendence that I mm -hmm. had living in a world that actively is pushing against and trying to destroy my opportunity for transcendence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It really makes me think about that. Uh, both of you talked about, you know, surrender. Um, 
And I think a lot about when people are like, okay, I want to heal. And then I, I kind of want to come back to my life and just live the way I was living. And, you know, like sometimes you have to just surrender to like, you might go to a big journey and realize like you need to leave your relationship. Mm-hmm. You might do a big journey and realize you need to move to a different city or you can't do the job you were doing, or you can't do, you can't harm yourself anymore. That's not mm-hmm. going to be actually flying. And so I think it is like, you know, we go into these big altered states, you know, we like talk to God or like touch the divine or whatever. And then you kind of come back to the reality that you either created or are being subjected to. And there's just the question of like surrendering to your own healing, really. Yeah. And I was, I was going to just say, like, I think what Letitia said is so important. There's like no one size fits all integration plan. I mean, but I, I do have a few practices that came to mind for me that come from my somatic sex education practice that may or may not be useful or may be extremely triggering to do as integration practices. So that being said, um, the things that come to mind for me that have helped me a lot with embodiment and agency coming, you know, coming through a healing process. Um, I would say two of them are from, from Betty Martin. I would say like, just the simple act of waking up the hands as a daily meditation practice of staying connected to body and sensation when dissociation and disembodiment is so often something that we experience after going through things like that. So that's just a practice of like find an object, pick up any object, find a quiet moment, say you're going to do this for like two minutes. And yeah, and we could just do this now all together. This would be great. And we're just going to use this object to give myself whatever kind of sensation I want to give myself that I find to be pleasurable. And maybe it's something sharp. Maybe it's really soft. Maybe I'm going to explore the backs of my hand. And it's amazing when you kind of slow down enough to really pay attention how much pleasure is available in just something that simple. So when I think about like reclaiming my body and reclaiming pleasure as an integration practice, that's something I would start with. I always think the solo practices are great for that. And the other thing for me, a very favorite tool, I'd be very disappointed if I got through a speaking moment and didn't get to bring up mindful masturbation. So here's my moment. (laughs) I feel like the most important sexual relationship you will ever have is with your own body. And, you know, I call it the witchy wank, the mindful wank, whatever you want to call it. Give yourself half an hour to be with your body. And this might be sometimes super intimidating, right? If we've had a lot of experiences of not feeling like our body was our own, feeling disconnected from our bodies, like I want to right away, like I know I joked, I used wank masturbation. We're thinking big, big thoughts already. Just now we're going to wind it back down. We're going to say, you're going to spend half an hour being with your body in whatever way it shows up today. And that you might put certain music on, you might do certain lighting, you might just stay clothed and move to music in a way that makes you feel erotic or awake or alive and connected to your body. You might invite your kinkiest objects with you and go on a really awesome, intense adventure. The whole spectrum is available to you, but the idea is to spend half an hour with touch, with sensation, with breath and with movement. And, you know, if you find yourself like tensing up, floating away, thinking, not noticing what's happening in your body, it's just like any other meditation practice. Come back to sensation. What are you noticing? And that's really like, to me, I'm going to stick with those two practices, actually, as like to me, because once you involve another person, you're like, there's a whole other ball of can of worms. But those are the two things that I really feel are such powerful, empowering 
healing integrative embodiment practices when you're talking about healing the erotic. Thank you, Britta, for somebody says so in the awesome. chat, everyone has some homework. <laughs> yes. yes. Yes, you do. <laughs> I want um, to move to... to it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I want to move to another question that uh, seems really important. And I'm, I'm realizing like it would be just great kind of basic question of, I appreciate the value of psychedelics in terms of healing trauma. I'm curious... What does the panel believe are the benefits of bringing psychedelics into a healthy sexual encounter setting? And I'm assuming that means like you're not it's a you're already in some kind of sexual relationship either with yourself or with someone else or multiple people that feels okay and bringing psychedelics into that. What what would be the benefits of like getting high as well? It's another big thing too. Um I will say for folks who who don't know that a lot of the early studies, research studies that have been done with MDMA started with couples work. And a really awesome thing that I learned a while back at a MAPS training for therapists of color, shout out to everybody who was there, shout out to MAPS, um, was that MDMA has its natural twin in the world, which is saffron oil, which comes from the sassafras tree. And that with particular indigenous cultures who have a relationship with sassafras or saffron oil, this was used particularly in community when two people had a conflict with each other and they needed to kind of engage with each other, like hash it out, talk about the things, and then feel that sense of connection with each other again. And so I know with MDMA in particular, but with a lot of plant medicine and theogens and psychedelics, one of the things that we do get is to feel often this relationship to our body where often sensation is heightened. And if you're enjoying that sensation, obviously that can skyrocket your experience. Um, but there's another piece that happens for a lot of folks around this sort of thing of connection. Like with MDMA in particular, we know that it does something that kind of helps that fear response calm down just a little bit so that you can be in relationship with some things that might be difficult or challenging. And then we know it's an empathogen, right? Which is why if people are rolling, they love everybody and they feel such a strong connection, right? But it happens with psilocybin. It happens with lots of plant medicine. This reality of like, oh, like we are all connected to each other. And I think that sense of connection, that sense of intimacy is something that can be built into a relationship. And you want all those other things that we just talked about first two. You want to have that foundation. Like I think we can never learn too much about consent and sexual communication because we've never really gotten that training and it feels really awkward in the beginning when we're trying to figure it out, but it's so necessary and it's such an important part of the work that we do. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It feels so important to to really emphasize using a psychedelic during sex is not to create safety where there was no safety. <laughs> That does not happen. Yeah. That's not what that is. <laughs> exactly. Britta, do you want to speak yeah. to this too? Yeah, I mean, jumping off right where you were there, um, you know, it's sort of like so often we're attracted to altered states, including alcohol, to pair with sex because it lowers our inhibitions, it reduces our shame, mm -hmm. so we feel like we can kind of let loose. And also so often we don't necessarily feel great every time about having done that or about how things went down when we did. And that's because those safety practices weren't already in place. So 
reemphasizing that and then saying, okay, I'm in a healthy sexual relationship where I'm able to communicate well. We have a kind of a working knowledge of our triggers and dissociative patterns. We'll be able to communicate through some things. If anything comes up, we're creating a safe container. We've got good set and setting. Now we're going to drop some acid, some MDMA, smoke some cannabis, whatever it is. And yeah, there's a lot of great reasons, right? You can, depending on the dosage, you can enhance your sensory perception, that surrender into altered states is going to be possibly easier. It could also get really scary. It depends on how much you take and who you are and what's happening for you that day. So your mileage will vary. Um, I think that psychedelic sex can be transcendent in ways that sometimes are harder to reach just through um, kind of everyday sexual practices without maybe enhancing it with certain kinds of breath work, which can also bring us to those places. Um, I think that the surrendering also breaks down the boundary between self and other, which also enhances that mm-hmm. transcendent potential. So there's a lot of beautiful stuff there. And I would also tread lightly, tread carefully uh, for myself. Personally, less is more in that regard. I feel like, you know, I don't necessarily want to go into a mega trip unexpectedly hitting on a whole load of material I'm not prepared to engage in when I thought I was just going to be exploring something, some fun sex with my partner. So that would be my personal thing. But I think everyone is different and know thyself, know thy dose, know thy setting, and really just be conscious of why you're introducing this. Because like Laura said, if you're doing it because you're trying to bypass conversations that need to be had anyway, or a desire that wants to express itself that maybe you're thinking when your partner's high as well, they'll be more amenable to and you'll feel less Mm. shame around sharing, but you both might not feel great about it the next day. Like you're layering altered states. Sex is already an altered state. So I'm not a Debbie Downer. I think it could be great, but it needs a lot of skill and and thought. I think we're all agreeing on that. Yeah. Yeah, As you were talking about it, it made me also think about things that we ask people to hold when they go on a journey is set an intention, which is going to be really important if you want to do this to enhance your sexual experiences, but then also hold it loosely, right? And this idea that the medicine will take you through the journey is the journey and that we can't necessarily predict. And it's actually the opposite of what we're trying to do. If we need to surrender, we don't get to control where that journey takes us or what sort of stuff is going to come out in those moments. And so holding a lot of that intention setting is about having that preparation, making sure that you have that foundation and that you can, y'all can, all of y'all, however many folks want to be involved, get to be able to be okay and navigate through what happens when the thing that you thought was going to happen didn't, or the thing that you wanted to have happen isn't happening. You're going to a different place, right? And so holding, like, do you have the tools? Are you resourced? Do you have that sense of safety within here? to be able to go to some of these places and be okay. And that we figure out when we're not in that altered state. Yeah. And tying it back to sexual violence, when you do the thing that you were just describing, Britta, and you don't have those conversations beforehand, like you were describing, Leticia, that's when sexual violence happens. Like a lot, you know, a lot of times we're really, it's really normalized just to be like, go get drunk and then initiate sex because people are more likely to say yes. And you don't have to feel ashamed and afraid of rejection. But like, that's the definition of potentially of date rape. If the person didn't feel good about it or didn't, you know, they were too drunk to consent and same thing can happen with psychedelics. So I think that, you know, just so critical to just do the, and this is maybe a piece too about the preparation and the integration. Um, 
that, you know, part of what you might be doing to lead up to an experience like that is working on your shame. So like, you're not necessarily going to go to the experience and bypass the shame by getting high and then hoping that everybody's going to be cool and nobody, you're not going to feel rejected. You're working on hearing a no, you're working on your shame beforehand. And that is the preparation that allows you to have that powerful experience and have it be healing or deepening or, or just pleasurable. That shame piece is huge. So I want to go to another question because this is something I try to talk about in every single talk or, or any anything event I do around psychedelics because it's so important. And I think it also really ties into sexual violence and the war on drugs and pleasure and everything we were talking about, land connection and things. How can we continue to be mindful of using plant medicine primarily used by a culture not your own? How can we continue to protect people's access to their indigenous medicines? You know, the first thing that comes to mind with that is we aren't the folks who get to answer that question. Um, you know, I think ultimately when we're talking about access, when we're talking about being honest about how the ways in which we see psychedelic use and, and even theory and, and belief systems around psychedelic medicine and healing, um, that they've often been, you know, if we think about what this looked like a long, long time ago when the drug war first started, which is when folks came here and saw practices from indigenous folks and were like, this is a thing that we have to demonize, right? And now this is a thing that's being embraced, but it's also, we're getting sort of a different version of it. And we're also not getting the real information about like the history and the foundation of this. And I think at the end of the day, one of the most important things is that we need to listen to indigenous folks and what they are saying to us what they want us to know, what they are asking us to do, what they are asking us to not do when it comes with engagement with plant medicines, particularly certain plants like peyote. You know, there are certain plants and relationships that certain cultures will have a relationship to. And I think there are so many ways that we can engage in healing with all different kinds of plants and all different kinds of altered states of consciousness, I think holding that if we're going to have a psychedelic renaissance, then it actually is not one if we actually don't have indigenous folks at the center of this conversation, right? Whatever it is that we are continuing to do, we really need to be centered in spirit. And we haven't quite figured out how to do that, you know? So trusting folks who have a relationship to nature and to plants for thousands of years in ways that we haven't is where I think that we start with that. And we have a really long way to go because what we have right now is a lot of diversity and this idea of inclusion, but it's still often an afterthought. It's still, oh, this is a thing we should do. It still is like this sort of check off that we do. We kind of just really need to, we kind of need to tear some things all the way down and start from the beginning. Yeah, and I want to second that, that, you know, most cultures and tribes and groups of people who have a medicine that they're stewarding have made public statements about how they feel about people outside of their group using that. And it's really important to listen to what people are saying. And when somebody hasn't made a public statement, you can do the, you can do the work to find out. Um, I will also say, you know, consent is really complicated within capitalism. 
So for example, when a tribe is stewarding a medicine and they have a really important way of using that medicine, that's really powerful. And they're also being so highly oppressed that they do not have any other way to make a living and they have to make money because they're being forced to exist in capitalism. There's a tricky, tricky issue there. Is that a consensual thing to share their medicine or is it a non-consensual thing that they just have to do? And so I just want to name that the complexity. Do I have an answer to that? No. Um, But what I will say is that, you know, I think for a lot of people who are like living in the sort of American culture mindset, we think about everything through money, domination, ownership. And I actually think it's a very white centered American culture value system to actually think about plants like anybody owns them. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing Mm -hmm. people say from indigenous communities is things like with the peyote thing, you know, people are saying, look, peyote is about to be endangered. Like, please just don't use it because we need to actually keep this plant alive. So it's not like you aren't allowed to use that because I own this thing. It's like, it's like, please don't use this because we are fighting for the existence of this thing. And I just want to name that and continue to build in the complexity around it. And yeah. And really echo what you're saying, Leticia. Do you want to add anything, Britta? Yeah, just a little bit. I think you guys, uh, or you both, not to gender, um, have okay, used... Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes guys, sometimes not. Wasn't sure how you were feeling in the moment, so I thought I'd back off. Um, so, yeah, I feel like you really covered most of where I come from on that, too. I think that, you know, the consent conversation, often the way we have a consent conversation isn't relational. It's like a tick box, right? We want to know, does the gate go up? Am I allowed to do this now? Am I okay? Phew, now I don't have to feel any shame or guilt doing it. It's over. It's one time. It's done. And I think that like, to me, the consent conversation around working with plant medicines is complex. It's relational. It's about a relationship with the plant, a relationship with the people who have been stewarding the plant. It's sort of like ongoing. So it might be that this was okay way to be in relationship with this plant for some time. And then a situation changed and I'm going to change my relationship to that plant. Cause now I've either got different awareness and knowledge or because things have actually changed, you know, maybe, it, maybe we're over harvesting Iboga next, which we very well might be. So I feel like just having an awareness that I think it's, and I found myself doing this when I first got more politicized around my psychedelic use, for sure, wanting to know where's the rubber stamp that says that what I'm doing is okay and not exploitative, and then I can go back to my healing now. And even that model is part of the problematic culture that we're trying to undo. And so thinking about what's my relationship with this plant? How am I in a relationship of reciprocity to the plant's survival, the plant's needs, the people who caretake the plant's survival and their needs, and that being an ongoing check-in. And I think that's much harder, but it's a muscle that we build. And I think it makes us better people as well to build it. Yeah. And it's essential. It is the path of liberation. It's right back to that piece about like, oh, I don't want to have to do that. And I have the privilege not to. Well, what is that doing? What is that doing to the person who says, I don't want to do that? Like that level of disconnection from spirit, from earth, from reciprocity, that is not good. Even if you, you know, even if in the moment you're privileged around it, like that's just not good for any of us. So how are people using psychedelics to heal sexual trauma? You know, I could say a lot about this, everybody, because like I made an entire podcast about it. So what I'll say 
first of all, is if you want to go way deep into how people are doing that, you can check out my podcast, Inside Eyes. But do either of you want to speak to this or say anything on it? I feel like you've got such a clear voice on this, Laura. I really am. I'm looking forward to your jam. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, you know, the big thing I just want to say is there are many, and also, okay, I'll also say I've done a whole bunch of interviews that you can also find if you go to my website that are, or just Google my name, that are all about this topic. So there's a podcast, there's a bunch of interviews on it. But what I'll say is I really see sexual violence as a form of spiritual violence. I think it creates a spiritual wound. I think that spiritual wound emerges as a disconnection from our body, our disconnection from other people, from relationships. It's a relational wound. Like sexual violence is always happening in relationship. And there are a number of ways that psychedelic and entheogenic healing, altered state healing, really address at the spiritual level. And I really believe when you use an entheogen, you know, pharmaceuticals, some people feel this way as well, but you're not alone. You're building a relationship to an entity. And I think that can be relationally really healing, spiritually healing. Um, and so a lot of people, when they go to that type of work, they do really, really deep healing that is, I would say, is very hard to attain in other spaces, though I do think it is possible. I don't want to say psychedelics are the only way to heal sexual trauma, but I do want to say they're very powerful. I also want to say the way people are using them is a ton of prep and a ton of integration and really like everything we've talked about today and, you know, at the pace of trust, all of that, just really building in safety and really building in a level of resilience first before you go in and have the really opening experience. Leticia, did you want to say something about it? I just remembered as you were talking about the relational piece that another thing that folks are doing with plant medicine and theogens and psychedelics is they're trying to address intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. So thinking about, for me in particular, having a black body, having a femme body, having a queer body, um, the different sort of social locations that we might have had or our people have had throughout the years in this country and what that impact has been on us. Um, I think about Audre Lorde's uses of erotic power, right? So she talks about being able to be in your body and feel sensation, right? She talks about the importance of deep, intimate connection. She talks about being able to trust your intuition, right? Being able to trust yourself. And she talks about how when we think about the erotic in this framework, that it's, it's a deeply spiritual and female thing. And when we engage in that, that's an act of resistance. And so one of the things that I think happens for folks when they're moving into trying to heal intergenerational trauma is just being able to have the experience of pleasure and feel that in their bodies and know that just me being able to have access to pleasure is an act of resistance, it's an act of healing. And that knowing that I am in a place and space right now that's safe enough for me to have the vulnerability that I need to move through some of these things that my ancestors weren't able to do is super powerful work. And with psychedelics, obviously one of the things that happens for folks is that they're able to make connections to who they are on a communal level, right? We go back into lineage, we connect with ancestors, we connect with spirit, we connect with the earth in a way where we realize, oh, like I am part of these. And so when I am healing, I am also helping to heal those who came before me. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh my gosh. I just want to say like, thank you all for joining us. Leticia, thank you so much for your wisdom. Britta, thank you so much for your wisdom as well. It's just like such an honor. If you're interested in 
learning more about my work, I basically mostly post on Instagram. You can find me there. It's at Laura May Northrup. And you can also go to my website and join my email list. Britta, I know you're on social media. Do you want to do a shout out to your socials? Sure. You can find me at Britta Loved. So it's just my name with a D at the end, past tense. Hopefully not. But yeah, hopefully <laughs> Britta Loved. Um, and I'm also BrittaLoved.com if you want to find more of some of my my writing and offerings. And Leticia? And I'll just say I see myself as part of a collective. So I'm going to shout out Doorway Therapeutic Services and Courtney Watson, our group practice director. You can check out Doré Therapeutics. We're doing a lot of work where we're centering queer folks of color, where we're focusing a lot on what it might look like to engage in healing practices that we can sort of have a decolonial relationship to, including eventually plant medicine. Okay, well, this was so awesome. Very grateful to be here. for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.